Welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Mike Britton. I'm an editorial director here at IHI, and I'll be filling in for Madge Kaplan as your host for today's show. We've all heard of PDSA cycles. Many of us have probably created a run chart, and a few of us may use driver diagrams on a weekly basis. But do you know how to get the most out of these tools, and do you know when to use them within your improvement work? With guidance from experts Dave Williams and Susan Hanna, we'll tackle those questions on today's WIHI, Seven Popular Improvement Tools, How and When to Use Them. Our expert panelists, who we'll meet in just a moment, have improvement blood running through their veins. In the first half of this hour-long session, they'll help us explore seven popular tools that can help you lead successful improvement work. Then, as always, we'll turn to you, our WIHI listeners, to share your reflections, thoughts, and questions. For those who are new to WIHI, welcome. This is the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's online audio talk show, which we offer live, bi-weekly, and after the show via IHI.org and on iTunes. As part of our daily work at IHI, we do our best to keep our fingers on the pulse of the healthcare improvement world, what trends are emerging, what projects are happening, and what improvers need to do their work. And improvement tools clearly make a difference. In fact, in March of this year, in just one month, you downloaded IHI's tools about 16,500 times. So in this WIHI, we want to take some time and make sure you're getting the most out of these tools. We can't get to every improvement tool, of course, so we'll narrow our focus to these seven. We'll cover flow chart, cause and effect diagram, scatter plot, Pareto chart, driver diagram, time series, run charts and control charts, and PDSA. Dave will be the captain of our QI ship, spending a few minutes on the ins and outs of each tool. Then Susan, an accomplished improver in her own right, will share practical advice, lessons learned, and pitfalls to avoid related to several of the tools. As a bonus, listeners to this show will be the first to know about a new and free QI Essentials Toolkit from IHI. The kit, which includes 10 useful improvement tools, three extra ones that we won't cover today, will be available for download next Tuesday and highlighted in our post-show email. But before we dive into today's show, here's IHI's John Gothier to let listeners know how they can make the most of their time with us. John. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, just a few items to point out to have everybody make the most of today's program. Um, so on the right of the screen is our chat window. And if you've tuned into WHI before, you know about all the great conversations and questions that take place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that when the questions are commented, or when the questions and comments are open, uh, you direct them to all participants in the send to bar down on the bottom right hand corner. Uh, this allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to the program. If you're logged on to the computer and listening to WIHI streaming he- by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you any- experience any audio issue, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, which I can see a couple in there right now. A simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know that we have their name or their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, uh, and there's a lot of them and they're useful, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. They'll be posted tomorrow at our archive page at IHI.org slash WHI, along with the chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and we'll send them on uh, at you. And finally, we're looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on the program, and we could use your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out a quick survey and let us know what you've done. Back to you, Mike. 
Thank you, John. Again, we'll turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. We welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can capture the conversation on social media and engage with other followers. Now, let's meet our expert panelists. Let's start here in our studio in Cambridge on a very steamy 90-degree May day. Um, Dave Williams, Executive Director of IHI, is co-lead of the Improvement Capability Focus Area. He has taught improvement science programs in the U.S. and abroad and has served as the Improvement Advisor for large collaboratives in the United States and Europe, including the Scottish Government Early Years Collaborative. A paramedic by background, Dave, who is from Austin, Texas, is faculty for the IHI Open School and the massive open online course IHI recently developed with HarvardX. Fun fact, Dave created the Mr. Potato Head exercise used worldwide to teach PDSA cycles. So welcome back to WIHI, <laughs> Dave. Oh, thanks for having me back. But you love that fun fact. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Next up, calling in from what I can only imagine is a picture-perfect evening in Scotland, we have Susan Hanna. Susan is the head of improvement programs in the Scottish Government's Early Years Collaborative in Raising Attainment for All. Susan has a background in high-care nursing, working as lead for clinical improvement and patient safety in NHS Arshire and Arran. Susan trained as an improvement advisor with IHI in 2011 and has been working with the Scottish government for the past four years, supporting the use of improvement science in government and across a range of public service areas. Uh, welcome to WIHI, Susan. Hello, I'm absolutely delighted to be with you today. It's not quite 90 degrees in Glasgow, but it is warm and it is sunny. Wonderful. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you both for being with us today. Uh, we have a lot to discuss, so let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Dave, to, to set the stage, please give us a brief overview of why these tools we're going to cover today are so important to improve in efforts. And, and maybe to help frame that a little bit, uh, in conversations before the show, you mentioned that these tools, tools fall into three categories. Tools for understanding and developing change ideas, tools for divining theory, and tools for actually doing improvement. So can you say a little bit more in, in a couple minutes? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, there's a ton of tools that exist in quality improvement and improvement science that we have access to that help us to learn and to discover what we're trying to improve in a process. Um, actually, uh, the idea of having essential tools dates back, uh, you know, decades ago to uh, a gentleman by the name of Ishikawa, who basically identified in most improvement efforts, there are a few essential tools that if we have in our toolbox uh, can be applied to most projects that really help us learn. And so these tools are based on um, on that early learning, and they're the core tools that uh, are often taught in our programs around helping people uh, to discover how to improve process. Great. Thank you. Great intro. Um, so let's dig in. Let's actually get to the tools and start and start going through. We Don't have, waste uh, any time. Exactly. We have seven to get through, hopefully in the next 30 minutes or so. It'll be a challenge, but uh, let's spend a few minutes per tool covering how and when to use each one within the improvement work that we're all doing. Um, let's start with flowchart, Dave. Okay, that sounds great. Now, uh, flowchart is uh, a very, very common tool, and uh, sometimes it's called a process map. Sometimes uh, uh, people describe it um, as a, a value stream analysis. There's a very different or multiple different ways that you can do flowcharts, but the basic idea is that um, we want to be able to describe um, our work as a process. And 
Dr. Edwards Deming said uh, uh, that one of the uh, core abilities of work is to, uh, to be able to describe your work as a process. If you can't do that, it's likely you can't uh, manage it well, you can't improve it. Uh, and so a, a process map or flowchart helps us do that. And it basically, it's just, uh, you know, describing how work gets done um, and, you you know, figuring out when a process starts and figuring out when it ends and what happens in between. And uh, it can be done at, at various levels of complexity from very, very simple steps, like you're just drawing it out on a napkin, uh, to more complex steps where you um, actually focus in on describing when decisions are made and what happens based on those decisions or when documents are created or things happen. Key thing for me that's really good about it is it's a wonderful place for teams to begin to try to understand where um, or what the project is they're working on. Um, and often it's a place where as soon as teams try to start to create a, a diagram or a process map or a flowchart of their um, process, that they discover that there's um, tons of variation, opportunities for improvement, places where there aren't shared definitions, or there's multiple ways of doing something, or there's no standard way. And so it's a fabulous spot to begin to get people to appreciate what are we actually working on and where's the gap between what we're doing now and where we might be able to go. And it can help generate some change ideas. Great. Thank you, Dave. Susan, I'd love for you to chime in with some additional advice here. Um, why do you find flowcharts or process maps, as they're also called, uh, to be such a useful tool? What, what should improvers keep in mind when they're creating one of these? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think one of the most helpful things for teams um, in relation to using this tool is that they want to understand the difference between what's actually happening in the process and compare that to the ideal flow of the process. So I've seen this used in a number of ways with different teams from different professional groups. Um, but one that springs to mind was um, a dental service working with children and families. Um, they had a clear guideline and policy in place, so they, they wondered why things were not going as well as, as they could be and children were being missed when they had a clear process in place. But when they did the process map, they could then identify the variation that existed within the process the way different teams were performing within the process and it allowed them then to really understand um, what they thought was happening every time and what actually was happening in practice. So it enabled them to identify the areas for focused improvement activity and importantly it helped them to agree as a team on what the areas of priority were which is quite often a, a problem for improvement teams. So yes, a very effective tool to help uh, teams come together and understand processes. Wonderful. Thank you. Great stuff to get started there. So one down, six to go. Uh, let's turn next to cause and effect diagrams, Dave. I like the way Mike says that, like a challenge is going to go longer. <laughs> it's absolutely a challenge. <laughs> so cause and effect diagram, another great tool. Um, it was. It's also known as an Ishikawa diagram, or sometimes people refer to it as a uh, fishbone diagram because it looks like uh, the bones or the skeleton of a fish. And the idea is the head um, is describing what it is that you're trying to accomplish. What, what's the thing you're trying to, um, uh, to fix? And then each of the major bones is um, a different category of something that might uh, be uh, affecting that. And so traditionally, um, uh, it, we tend to have um, people, uh, materials, methods, equipment, and environment as our categories, although there are some variations that, that people have adapted um, uh, in terms of different categories. And the intent is that people that are closest to the process, uh, content experts,
experts um, and improvers come together and and really uh, try to identify all of the things that might be factors that are influencing the outcome that we want. Um, and it's a great place for us to um, uh, learn, again, about trying to develop change ideas. Now, one thing that I find extremely useful about this, and I recommend uh, very frequently, is that often when we're looking at a complex problem, we get caught up in all the details. And one advantage here is to, if you focus in on a specific thing like people, one bone on the fishbone diagram, it helps you to just hone in on that one category of factors and focus on getting those down, uh, and then you can switch to another one. So there, there actually was a, uh, an improver that used to work with Dr. Deming named uh, uh, Bill Schirkenbach, and that was one of the strategies he used to talk a lot about is, and every time he was thinking about a project or an improvement um, process, he would go and break it down in this sort of categorical thinking, and now it gives us this whole sort of system of understanding about what could potentially be causing the problem, and those can be converted into things that we use as change ideas or factors that we want to test um, later in, in our um, in our either whether it's a PDSA cycle or an ex- a planned experiment. Nice, great, right. thank you, Susan. What would you add? Yeah, so, I mean, it's fascinating. Dave's describing exactly the way I would um, um, see this in relation to the work that we do. So quite often teams get caught up trying to determine what the associated barriers are to achieving their goal. And this tool really provides a forcing function to help them break down their thinking into these really helpful categories. And then quite often teams are surprised at the barriers they're able to come up with, the ideas that they have around what are causing the blockages or the blockers to making progress in their work. So it does help them come up with those change ideas and to prioritise their work. Um, When we've seen two different professional groups come together as an improvement team, for instance, speech and language therapists coming together with educationalists and thinking about their shared vision for improving early vocabulary and language development, they realised that they were much more effective at identifying the reasons why the system was not currently serving them well by exploring in more detail their respective knowledge and where there were possible causes, they could collectively identify ideas together and take forward their improvement project, allowing them to really focus their joint service and ensure that they were delivering more effective interventions for the children in their care. That's great. Thank you so much. So many questions are already coming to mind, um, and, and I'm glad we'll have some time for that at about the halfway mark of the show. So, um, listeners, as you're as you're hearing to listening to Dave and, and Susan, keep in keep in mind any questions that are coming to you about these tools, and, and uh, we'll have some good time for that at the end. But let's keep going. Let's go to number three. Number three, we're going to look at scatter plots, Dave. Great. So the first two are really trying to think about the process of the system that we're working with. And the scatterplot is one of the first tools uh, that we're going to touch on that that helps us to look at data and think about data. And uh, scatterplots um, are something you, you've seen them in Excel. I mean, they're, they're uh, reasonably easy to make. But the intent here is for us to try to use a tool that helps us look at um, the relationship between two potential um, factors. Um, so it could be the relationship between an intervention and the outcome you want. It could be, uh, uh, and, and you know, it's reflected in a um, a chart uh, where we're trying to understand um, what happens as we make a, uh, adjustments in those factors. Now, uh, you'll see if you're uh, looking um, online uh, that there's an example of, of a scatter plot. Um, and this specific example is around relationships between long weights and capacity. So we're trying to look at, um, you know, as we have changes in the uh, the capacity used, how does that relate to the the wait times? Uh, does it extend it? And and there depending on the pattern of the data, 
um, you might be able to determine is there a strong or a weak relationship. And it might give you some sense of it. You know, if I move this, this is going to happen. Um, and so one of the keys here is that you need to make sure, and we'll talk a little bit more about this when we get into um, uh, Schuhart's statistical process control, is you, you want to make sure that you're looking um, at a system that's in control. In other words, it, it has common cause variation. It doesn't necessarily have to be a good system, uh, but you want to make sure that you're looking at uh, common cause uh, variation before you plug it in here. But it can be really, really helpful in terms of trying to uh, understand uh, the relationship. Now, notice I keep saying relationship because there's a difference between uh, a, a relationship or a correlation and causation. So just because one changes with the other does not necessarily mean that one causes the other. It just means that we have a sense that there's a relationship between the two, and that can help us uh, to understand um, the change ideas that, that we're working with and how they may potentially affect the outcome we're trying to achieve. Great. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for walking us through scatter plots. Let's, uh, let's move on to tool four here. Uh, we're going to look at Pareto charts, um, which I know are one of your, one of your favorites, maybe. <laughs> Well, it is a good one. It's a, it is one that I like a lot. It actually is, uh, uh, was uh, coined by uh, Dr. Joseph Duran. Um, and it's based on, uh, it's a long story and that I won't go into because it'll take the tool too long and Michael start kicking me under the table, but it's based on a, an Italian economist theory that a lot of, of the wealth is tied to in, in, in the world is, is tied to a small number of people. And we know that to be true. The same applied to improvement is there's an assumption that there are a number of different factors that may be influencing the improvement that we're trying to accomplish. Um, but there may be certain factors or certain errors uh, in the example that we have here um, that happen uh, more frequently or are more common than others. And so part of the theory is we're trying to figure out um, what, you know, count what are the frequency of each of these errors, and then we, we order them um, from the most frequent to the least frequent. And the aim here is to try to figure out if I, which factors, if I worked on, or, you know, which errors if I worked on um, at the start would make the biggest impact. So, you know, often this is referred to as the 80-20 rule or the 80-20 uh, principle. It's not always that exact, I mean, in terms of the math. Um, but the idea is we want to work on the things that will have the biggest impact or happen the most frequently first and then work our way down. Now, this is another example of something you, you want to make sure that you've, you've You've eliminated things that are um, special cause from your process first and then look at this because it's possible that you might have things that um, uh, influence the, the Pareto chart uh, that uh, are not part of the regular uh, causal system. Uh, so it's really important to make sure it's a, it's a common cause system. But um, basically, it's, it's just a bar chart organized from most frequent to least frequent. Uh, it can be fancier if you use software, but it's totally fine to just use a bar chart. And that just informs you to be able to help you to um, uh, make decisions about where you want to, may want to start your improvement work. Great. Thanks, Dave. And to your point, so this isn't a tool that you're going to start your improvement project. You're, gonna, you're, not, you're not embarking on an improvement project and then you're going to turn immediately to Pareto's. You need to do a little bit of work first. Is that correct? Yeah. No, that's a great question. So for sure, it may be something that's early in your planning, um, but it, it's likely something when you're when you're trying to develop, um, you know, answer, like in the model for improvement, if you're trying to answer your questions about what changes can I make that will result in improvement, uh, this may be one of the studies that you do where you collect some data about some of the uh, errors that happen and then, and then uh, look at a Pareto chart. One common thing um, is to go, let's say, and look at um, a, a sample of K 
cases. Like, let me look at the last 30 patients that I saw and see what the problem, or the last 30 patients that had an error, see what the, what the uh, reasons for those errors were, put it into a Pareto chart, and that might guide you in saying, hey, I want to start here versus there. Excellent. Thanks, Dave. Uh, so we're a little more than halfway through. We're, we're at a good pace. And remember, all these tools will be available in a new toolkit we'll share next Tuesday's WIHI follow-up email. Some of my colleagues are literally putting the finishing touches on it right now. Um, all right, we're going to move to uh, something we use. Uh, there are driver diagrams all over the walls here at IHI. Um, Dave, give us a start with, uh, with driver diagrams, and then Susan will turn to you to get some um, thoughts as well. Right, yeah. So driver diagrams are a, a very interesting tool. Um, they're actually something that emerged uh, out of uh, work here at IHI and in collaboration with the Associates in Process Improvement. have been one of our thought leaders for many years. And, um, and basically a driver diagram uh, is a graphical or visual representation of our theory of change. So it's basically, in, in many ways, you'll, when you look at it, it'll sort of look like a fishbone diagram that's been turned around. But at the, at the head is the aim the kind of outcome that we're trying to achieve. And then we're basically sorting out and saying, here are the the things that I think um, are the drivers of getting to that outcome. And then breaking it down even further into um, uh, more specific secondary drivers. And then uh, in the example uh, that we're sharing here, which came from a great article from uh, Brandon Bennett and Lloyd Provost in uh, Quality Progress um, that is available on the IHI website, uh, you can see that it moves from, as we move from from the left-hand side, from from the outcome to the right, we go from broad to um, and in general to very very specific change ideas, and we can even link those up with change concepts. Like, what are the specific types of changes, like standardization or um, re uh, removing redundancy or reminders or things that might be useful things to try as change ideas as we're trying to improve. So it's a visual reflection of our theory of change. It's often what we use to help answer the question, what changes can we make that will result in improvement? That's great. Thank you for that overview, Dave. Um, Susan, let's turn to you for a couple minutes and uh, you can share your experiences using driver diagrams. Yep. So, so this is a tool that we use a lot in our work in Scotland. And it's fantastic because it translates, the tool translates across all services, whether it's healthcare, education, the justice system. It's such an empowering tool. And, and, and I think what I love about it is that it helps you to map out the known content of what we know should be in place. And it allows teams to come up with their ideas for changes that will enable them to implement the evidence or the known content into their practice. So it's great for creating um, a team approach, building a, a, a team for improvement. Everyone owns the, dri the driver diagram content and can contribute to its formation, which is one of the, the beauties of this tool. So um, it enables the teams to translate the expert view into practical application. I think that's the most important element of this. They can identify the practical steps to deliver improvement um, and taking forward innovative ideas for testing out in their practice with PDSA to, to ensure that the interventions can be implemented reliably into to the context of the practice area in which they work. So um, it's great because you start with a very high-level aim and a goal, but it allows you to take very practical steps to, to get to the point of improving your outcomes. 
That's great. Thank you, Susan. And we're tracking down that source um, so that we can share that really helpful article uh, with you. But, but Dave, I want to turn back to you for a second here for a final thought on drivers. Well, one thing I, I was thinking about um, uh, both in the introduction and, and when Susan was describing this is that this is a tool that's become widely adopted, um, and it's a very, very effective tool. But it's not an easy tool, and, and I should clarify that. It's something that really is meant to be a combination of subject matter expertise and expertise of those that are working closest to the process that we're trying to improve. And so, you know, this may include, for example, if there's evidence-based practice, um, the literature uh, should be uh, here. So if we're working on uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia, we shouldn't just make that up and come up with our best ideas. Like there's there's a bundle for that. There's there's evidence around that. That should go in there. Um, If it isn't something that's based on evidence-based and we're going back to something like uh, that we, you know, don't have a clear theory or know how to get this done, then it may be based on best practice or or what we know about it. But but I just want to, to emphasize that it should be linked in the evidence if it does exist and to recognize it, it while it may look simple, it's actually pretty complex and it evolves as you learn more about the process and get better. Great. Great. Thanks to both of you. Lots of good stuff there. And uh, I see some really thoughtful questions coming through already. Please feel free to, to keep them coming through and, and we'll turn to those in about uh, in about five or ten minutes here. We do still have two two biggies, I would say, to get through here. We've gone through five. Um, we have two to go. So next, let's go ahead and touch on uh, time series, which is going to be uh, it's kind of a two-parter. So Dave, Dave, start us off. Right. So, so time series is, is the idea of looking at data over time. Um, and so uh, most of us are familiar with that because you can do it in Excel and create a line chart, which, you know, in, in improvement is called a run chart. Um, and then when you get more sophisticated and when you have more more data, um, you can use something that's called a Schuhart statistical process control chart. Um, they all are um, data that we're looking at, either either like a measurement data or, or um, uh, data that is something that we can uh, about uh, productivity or it's or it's an attribute data. Um, but it's basically being uh, uh, reflected visually in time um, series order. Um, and run charts just are, are if you only have a, you know, you're just getting started, you only have a few data points, that's great. You can use run charts and just get started. Um, and once you get to 12 data points, you can actually add a median and there are a few statistical signals or uh, rules that you can apply that can help you figure out whether something is random or non-random, uh, so that you can figure out whether, whether your process, um, has something that's unusual within it. And then when you get, uh, more than 12 data points, um, you can uh, actually start to, um, uh, apply or decide on different types of charts uh, that are based on the kind of data you're working with. And they add uh, uh, an average in the middle, but then they'll add upper and lower control limits. And these these upper and lower control limits are based on on math and statistics. They're not just arbitrary. Uh, But what they do is they tell us um, about what we should be able to predict in the future this data um, will be. Um, and they also tell us if we have a, a stable um, process or not. So they give us a hint. Is, is there something in here that shouldn't be in here? we got to go figure out. There's, a, there's an attributable or special cause thing that's going on that's making this uh, uh, process unpredictable. And if that's the case, we've got to figure those out before we worry about our improvement. Um, or is this a stable process? doesn't mean that I necessarily like it or not, um, but it is something that I can predict. I can predict the wait times are going to be greater than 30 minutes tomorrow because they've been this, you know, within – 
uh, a, a predictable range statistically uh, for a period of time. And these are really, really helpful to help us understand uh, what kind of decision we're making. Are we looking for a special cause or are we working on the process that produced this work? Uh, and they also are very, very helpful at helping us see when we make changes that result in a change in the process uh, to be able to understand them. And it is the most powerful way to look at any data um, that, that we're using in process improvement. Uh, it is the best practice. It's something we always want to strive for to, to use and help us uh, learn about our data. Uh, one term I like to use uh, some, uh, sometimes is um, there's a gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. Donald Wheeler, um, and in his book, he sometimes calls them process behavioral charts. And I've always liked that, even though um, we here at IHI call them Schuhart uh, statistical process control charts based on, on who created them. Donald Wheeler called them um, behavioral charts because he was reminding people that you wanted to understand the behavior of the process that you're working with. And so Schuhart charts allow us to have a better sense, uh, just like an EKG would if you were a, a physician or a nurse. Or, or paramedic EKGs tell us about the heart. Um, uh, Schuhart uh, statistical process control charts tell us about the process. That's great. Thanks so much, Dave. It's, and it's one of those things we we don't see a lot of bar charts around here at IHI. You're not allowed. They're not. <laughs> Not allowed. Unless, uh, unless they're ordered by the number of frequency of issues that you have or as a, as a histogram, but but not to show data over time. Man, you're tough. Um, Susan, <laughs> let's uh, let's jump over to you. Um, share your experiences with using uh, time series charts. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I guess this is probably the most exciting part of, of improvement activity, and this is, this is the tool that provides the really deep learning about um, improvement and what's happening within the, the processes and the system that we're trying to alter and improve. Um, so it changes how we view our data, um, and often we have data that exists within the practice, but we don't always understand or view it in a way that we understand what it's trying to tell us. So and one example that I can think of, a school that I worked with, they had um, lots and lots of data available to them. They were capturing it every week and every month around attendance. Um, of children and young people in school. They knew they had a problem with attendance, but they didn't really understand what was going on within the system. But by converting their tabled data into time series data, they could instantly begin to identify trends, for example, in the days of the week where there were problems or times of the day that were causing issues or a particular time of the year. And it then allowed them to think about um, increasing their efforts to, to track data over time, annotate their learning, and uh, thinking about intervention that would improve attendance in those particular uh, tricky uh, times of the times of the uh, school year. So, by putting the data on the wall, making it visible, annotating, and describing the improvement journey they were on, they not only empowered themselves to drive improvement, but they found this a really engaging way of bringing in more teachers in school, more children, and having really great conversations about improvement, which is really what um, uh, this type of data allows you to do. That's great. Thanks, Susan. Susan, you mentioned one word in there that I think was really important that I don't think we got a chance to talk about. Could you, could you mention why annotations are so important uh, when using time series charts? Yeah, so I know we haven't talked about PDSA yet, but when uh, people are testing out different ways of, of improving their system, they, they will be tracking lots of interesting information, qualitative information that really informs the, the progress of their improvement journey. So on your run chart, you could very easily annotate what you tried out and you can then visualize where you made a change and the impact that change has had, whether that be a good thing or perhaps a bad thing, but it allows you to be really clear about the journey you're on and the learning that you're gathering while you're on that journey. 
Perfect. Thanks, Dave. You want to add something? It looks yeah. Like. Well, I wanted to add, um, you know, one of the things that I was reflecting on as, as Susan was talking and telling the great story about schools is that um, uh, a number of times, and I know across my experience um, with data, I've been in all different kinds of settings where um, leaders are looking at things in tables of data. Um, and actually, as a matter of fact, there's now a, a you know real challenge uh, internationally of people using traffic lights and uh, red, yellow, green uh, to, to try to understand data and make it more um, uh, visual uh, because uh, they, they can't understand these tables. And um, and what I always encourage people to do is actually use Shuhart charts as a way to visualize data. And a great example for me, very similar to the school example, is I remember um, years ago working with an ambulance service in uh, Reno, Nevada, where for years and years and years they, they captured their access time, the time that they were able to access patients in a grid, in a table by month uh, and by year. And very proudly, they, they were looking at it as a compliance. So did they meet a target or not? And they were looking at it over time. They had years and years of data, and every single one of them showed that they were meeting their target. So they were very proud. But we took that data and plugged it into a Shuhart statistical process control chart. And actually, they didn't even realize, because they were looking at it in a grid, that they had made a dramatic improvement 12 months before that huh. had, had uh, not only uh, – well, it had reduced the variation – in, in the, the amount of, um, or, or in their compliance, uh, and they were actually more reliable than they had been, but they were still above their goal, but they had never noticed it. And I uh, presented that to the leadership team, and the leadership team kind of stared at me. They had no idea. Um, they went back and looked at it, and it turns out that they had actually made an improvement um, that they did. They had no idea that it actually, in the process of making the improvement, they had made the process uh, more reliable. Um, and uh, because in the table, you couldn't see the change in the variation. Um, you couldn't see that there was an effort. And just putting it in a chart, I was able to show them something must have happened. The chart doesn't tell me what. It just tells me that something's changed in the system. And then we went back and found that, wow, they'd actually made an improvement that probably saved hundreds of thousands of dollars over the, over the course of the year that they um, hadn't even thought about. Um, and it, we also identified a special cause, which was it turned out they had a snowstorm one Friday um, that <laughs> threw off all of their numbers. And you know, and as soon as I saw the you know the blip, I said, "What happened here?" And they said, "Oh, well, that that was a snowstorm." And you know, it helped them to connect. Here's an event with a change in, in what yeah. the results were. So it's really powerful. Power runs serious chat. That's great. Thank you so much. Okay, so let's uh, let's get to our last tool, and then we're going to do the Q and A um, PDSA cycles. Dave, what do you got? All right. So the, the PDSA cycle is, is um, you know, I used to joke that when I first got in, into improvement years and years ago, um, I learned about PDSA cycles and I, I read about it, uh, you know, in a book and it looked like some old tool that somebody must have made. And it was made by uh, a long time ago. It actually came out of uh, Walter Schuhart as well. Um, the, the gentleman who brought us uh, uh, the Schuhart statistical process control charts also developed the theory that would evolve into the Schuhart cycle. And then Dr. Deming um, really built it out. Um, and, and further developed it uh, to, to, to what eventually became the uh, Schuhart-Deming cycle. And then uh, the Associates in Process Improvement uh, built it out even further. Um, but uh, the, the core idea of a PDSA cycle is how do we take the scientific process and bring it to a practical um, level at the, at the place where the process occurs? Um, and uh, 
the, uh, PDSAs uh, or the Plan Do Study Act cycles can be small or large. You'll hear us often at IHI talking about them in terms of trying to do small tests of change um, in in sequence with frequency so that we can learn. And the idea is every PDSA we do, we we gain new knowledge. We're testing predictions, um, and, but sometimes they are big. So it's it, PDSAs don't have to be small. It's just dependent on what you're trying to do. Um, but it, the idea is we want to take a change idea um, and figure out a way that we could test it by changing the process so that we can learn. So in the, a, a couple key things I want to share here, and, and it's really, really critical, is this is not just something – it's not trial, trial and error. This is thoughtful process. So um, in the plan, what we're trying to do is ask a question that we want to test an idea and, and see what we can learn. In doing that, a key piece that the Associates in Process Improvement added on to um, uh, from their learning uh, with Deming was this idea of prediction. A lot of improvement is about us trying to be able to predict what we see in the future or what we think will happen if we make a change. And so we actually say, you know, I'm going to I'm going to change the flow of of the way uh, you know the triage process works in our um, uh, emergency department. And so I'm going to make a prediction if I do that, these things might happen. And I'm, so I'm thinking ahead that I, I'm doing this change and I intend to see these things. This is what I think will happen. And often I'll encourage you to actually like uh, do it in something you can measure. So uh, you think uh, it'll ta- it'll move faster. Well, what is it today and how much faster do you think it'll be? Is it 10%? Is it going from five minutes to two minutes? What What is the change that you expect to see? Then you go and you actually do the test. You actually do it um, and and see what happens. You follow through with it. The study part, a key piece that you want to do is you go back to, after you've done the test, you go back to what you thought was going to happen and you compare it with what actually happened. This is one of the number one things that doesn't happen in rigorous PDSA testing is you 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 look back and you say, you know what, I my plan was to, to uh, change this process this way and I did that when I did it um, and I thought that the wait time would change from five minutes to two and a half minutes and it turned out it only changed to three minutes. Um, and by comparing what actually happened with what you thought would happen or what you predicted would happen really enhances your ability to learn from the test. And then you also can uh, think about everything else that came in. From this, uh, we go back to what what, uh, Deming included, which was to say there's basically three decisions that you want to make. And uh, the three that I – the way I described it is one is you did a test and it was horrible and thankfully you only did it on a very, very small scale. It didn't work um, and the great thing to do is you abandon it um, before too many people found out. And and that's okay. Mm -hmm. A lot of tests – don't work. It's the, and it's better that you learn it on a small scale versus trying to implement it across your entire organization. Um, the other is it's so perfect, it worked fabulous, and then you say, let's adopt it. Very rare, unless you have a high confidence of something um, that's going to work and, and that it, it builds. The vast majority of the time, you're going to do an adaptation of the change that you made, right? You're, you're, you did the change. You gained some new knowledge about how it worked or didn't work. You learned about things you couldn't predict um, that came up in the process of the change. And now you're going to build another PDSA. And the key here, and another distinction I think is really important, is that um, really successful improvers do uh, sequences of PDSAs where it's one after the other after the other that's building on the learning from the previous. So it's very common to see 
people would say, oh, I'm going to test this idea, and then it sort of worked, and let me go and test this other idea, and it sort of worked, and, and they're bouncing all over to different change ideas. We really encourage you to um, try to do iterative tests in a sequential manner uh, so that you build on that knowledge, you build on that learning. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you can't test other ideas as well or in parallel, uh, but it's really important that until you have a strong degree of belief that that change is, is working in the way that you've you've designed it, you, you're going to keep doing PDSAs till you get there. That's great. Thank you. I love that. Abandon, adopt, or adapt. That's a nice little catchy three A's around PDSA cycles. Thanks, Dave. Um, and thanks to you, Susan. This was a great 35 minutes of, of really solid education around these QI tools. Um, John, because we might have some new listeners, can you give us a quick uh, quick education on how to participate in the chat? Yes. Uh, make sure that your questions and comments are addressed to all participants down there in the in the send to bar, down in the chat. Um, and I see a lot of you have figured that out already. But uh, if you have any questions or comments, just make sure that you're uh, addressing them to all participants. Thank you. And uh, we'll turn to those questions as they as they come in. There's a great question about the potato head activity. Um, <laughs> yeah, why don't we turn there? It's fun, Dave. Dave, could you t- just just give us 60 seconds on the potato head activity, how you came up with it, and, and what it does? Sure. So uh, the Mr. Potato Head activity was actually created, uh, gosh, about five uh, five or six years ago, um, and I created it um, in, in trying to teach people how to do the plan, do, study, act cycle. And at IHI, we uh, often use exercises to teach PDSA uh, testing. Uh, and uh, over a course of several years in different programs that I was involved in in the States and in the UK, we had kind of gone through all of the various um, exercises, uh, building paper airplanes, uh, the 246 exercise, uh, uh, the spaghetti challenge. I mean, there's a, a series of them that we had gone through. And, um, and one of the challenges I was encountering is one, I was running out of exercises, so I was getting bored. Uh, but the other was that um, none of the exercises seem to be able to pull together um, the uh, the various components of, of what's important in PDSA testing. So people weren't learning how to do rigorous PDSA testing, and they weren't connecting it to using measurement uh, alongside. And so I actually had been um, uh, involved in a program here at IHI called the Impacting Cost and Quality Program, where a colleague from uh, UMass uh, Medical Center, Eric Dixon, uh, did a, a different exercise where he used Mr. Potato Head uh, to teach people about uh, lean methods, uh, and it sparked an idea. What if we tried to do one around building uh, a potato head? And so we we created a prototype of an exercise that we tested at Catholic Health Partners in a collaborative, um, and uh, it was pretty successful. And then we tested over a series of collaboratives um, over several years and improved it. Now uh, the facilitator's guide is in version two, and it's it's a one way of being able to help people learn about PDSAs with rigor uh, tied with um, uh, run charts to, to learn with data. And you do have a Mr. Potato Head tattoo, correct? I don't. I don't have any tattoos, uh, um, but uh, I do have eight or ten of them that I in my house. Um, but it's sort of taken on a life of its own. They, uh, I actually laugh. I was just in, in London for the uh, uh, BMJ IHI forum. There was a great session by some uh, folks from Canada describing their use of the exercise. Um, I actually was not uh, invited to bring it to the UK originally. Um, my, or my colleagues thought it was too silly, um, and then they finally did, and now it's probably one of the most commonly used uh, exercises uh, there. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Great, great story. Thank you. All right, so let's turn to um, some of the questions that are coming in. Susan, I, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. So this, there's uh, a bit of debate, I guess, going on about um, cause and effect diagrams uh, and, and, and driver diagrams. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the value of each one and, and where you see each one fitting within improvement work? 
Yeah. So, so I, I guess from my own experience, I would always, I would always feel really uh, comfortable doing a cause and effect diagram first to really diagnose the issues that we're dealing with, to really understand the system and all the contributing factors that we need to consider um, that are potentially the, the barriers and blockages to us achieving what we're trying to do with regards to our process and outcomes. And, and then the driver diagram enables you to then map out your theory of how you could take forward your improvement journey. So one helps to feed the other. So I would always do the diagnostic tool first and then and then um, bring the team together to map out their theory of change and improvement on the driver diagram. That's great. Thank you. Dave, anything to add to that about the about sort of the, the difference or the or the use of, of cause and effect versus driver? Where where do you find um each one most useful within an improvement project? Well, cause and effect diagram is, is, is about trying to unpack or learn, um, about the, the potential causes of a, of a problem, uh, and to, to break it down in certain categories. Um, so it's a little bit different than drivers in terms of, um, you might, I mean, it's not likely that you're going to organize your driver diagram by what are the things I need to work with, with people? What are the things about the environment? It's more understanding the factors that contribute. Now, when you flip to a, um, a driver diagram, what you're trying to do is now say, based on what I'm understanding here, how do I create a theory for change? So a good example, Susan and I um, worked with uh, um, uh, 20 teams in, in Scotland a few months back in March, and we invited them to actually sit down and, and use these tools in order to help them um, learn uh, about what the problem was they were trying to fix. So they actually started with a process map, and then they did a cause and effect diagram, and then they did uh, a few other tools like a force field analysis and, and used an affinity process to pull everything that they learned together and then that helped inform their theory of change and they built a driver diagram based on all of the the original exercises and so for me that was a lot better than just trying to brainstorm they were using tools as a way to unpack their understanding of the process they were trying to fix and and think about it in different in, in, from different views and angles so that then when it came time to develop a theory of change they could work on uh, they were very informed they had a lot of knowledge Great. And so is there, we've, we've talked, you guys both mentioned sort of, is there an order to these things? And there's a nice question here in the chat about, um, you know, should I do fishbone, then Pareto, then run chart, control chart? Um, so maybe comment on that particular question, but, but then just in general, is there an order to these things? Should you, you know, follow a certain, um, a certain scheme as you're working on an improvement project? Um, so there can be, uh, it, 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 so a lot depends on what you're trying to accomplish. But, uh, so when you look at something like a fishbone, uh, as I mentioned before, the, the aim is to try to think about potential causes, pot potential issues. Um, some people do this uh, in advance of a process map. Some people might do it after a process map because the process map uh, generates some ideas that you might not have predicted. Um, and so uh, there's, uh, you know, the, the ordering depends on a little bit on what you're what you're trying to do. Uh, now there are um, things like, you know, I mentioned before, uh, you you might want to do a, con a run chart or a control chart before you do. Um, uh, Pareto just to make sure that you're looking at a, a system that's in some degree of, of control. Um, you know, so sometimes there are, there are opportunities where data is helpful to do and uh, before uh, trying to figure out uh, some of the causes. 
Um, but it's, there's not a hard and fast rule that says A to B to C to D. Uh, now, as I just mentioned, Susan and I, when we were in, in Scotland, did an order because we had a theory about how we wanted to unpack people's learning. And we had a theory that if they looked, if they used each of these tools, like the process map, followed by the uh, fish, or cause and effect fishbone diagram, uh, followed by um, the, um, uh, what did I say, the, uh, fi- uh, the force field analysis, that that would tell them different parts of the puzzle, and then they could pull all that together to build a driver diagram. Great. That's really helpful. And Susan, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts here too, but be, before I do, I just want to mention, based on a couple comments in the chat, that, that again, all these tools will be available in a new toolkit, um, QI Essentials, that we'll share in next Tuesday's WIHI follow-up email. And they'll all have a short description of what the tool is, instructions on how to create one, uh, an example, and a template as well. So look for that next Tuesday. All the tools we covered today and then a few, few bonus ones as well. Um, Susan, I, I'd love your thoughts on... Uh, on the on this order question, yeah, yeah so I, so totally agree with Dave. You know, there there is no there is no ranking order of the best tools to use at the right time. And we had a wonderful experience with the teams that we were working with. I had always in the past maybe chosen one or two tools to work with teams and or allow them to select a tool that they thought may give them the answers they were looking for. Um, so I was slightly sceptical that by using all of these different tools we could extract so much information, lots of different information. And I was so pleasantly surprised to see the amazing informative uh, driver diagrams that were produced out of, of the various tools that they applied to their thinking as a, as a team coming together to drive improvement. So, um, yeah, so I think if you, if you can afford the time and the energy into trying a, a range of different tools, I think it certainly does add um, fantastic quality to what you're trying to do. Excellent. Thank you. I want to turn to one um, uh, question that was asked a, just a bit ago. Uh, can the tools help me choose KPI to monitor? To monitor? Yeah, so KPI is a key process indicator. Um, frequently when people use KPIs, they often, they're thinking of bigger, higher level measures, but, um, uh, but there's, so there's a couple places here. So one thing, if I'm, if I'm mapping out a, a process, uh, and I'm looking at a process map of an important process for me, I might want to develop measures about things that I think are key quality uh, uh, characteristics of that process. So uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the flow of, of your triage process in the emergency department, I might uh, decide that there are certain things within that process based on my process map learning um, that uh, I should think about measuring. Uh, on the flip side, when we talked about driver diagrams, um, so um, one one thing that's often missed, so in, in, when we think about developing improvement projects, and at IHI we use something called the model for improvement. It has three questions. What are we trying to accomplish, which is our aim, how we know it changes in improvement, which is our measurement system, and what changes can we make that will result in improvement, um, which is our um, change theory, right? So each of those questions has something attached to it. So the first one has an aim statement. Uh, the second one about measures is a measurement system, and that measurement system is linked both to our aim, so the outcome. Uh, measure is going to be the aim that we're trying to accomplish. And the process measures that we use are often uh, or, or should be tied to the drivers of your driver diagram. So there's a linkage. I, I should be able to hang the key performance indicators of any project uh, on uh, my driver diagram and be able to see uh, what that is because that's my feedback system that helps me know about the work that I'm, that I'm doing. So there, there's a relationship in a lot of, of this work. That's great. Thank you very much, Dave. And, and Vicki, thank you for just putting this um, link in the chat here about how to use PDSA cycles by spinning coins. I saw a comment about um, 
these types of games and how useful they can be in teaching these different concepts. And we have three or four videos, I, th I think, that are uh, – you can find them on our Open School website. There's one about spinning coins. There's one about measuring bananas. And then – Another one. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, but but they, but but for games, different reasons. But yeah. Exactly. But games can be a really useful way to kind of get these concepts out to a larger group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So actually, the the coin spinning uh, exercise was a uh, a follow up to Potato Head that I created um, and uh, did with my colleague Ninian Lewis, who's actually featured in the video with Rebecca Steinfeld. And uh, the main reason that we created it was we needed an exercise that because we were going to New York City to work with uh, community groups who were doing improvement, and we didn't know what the space was going to be like. We didn't know um, how much room we were going to have. We didn't know a whole bunch of stuff, and also we didn't feel like carrying a bunch of potato heads in our carry on. Um, and <laughs> Uh, so I came up with a game that involves uh, spinning uh, coins, and um, and so they walked through and described this. And so what we're trying to do is to be able to have people uh, simulate an activity um, so that they can learn about it. The measuring the banana is about operational definitions. This is about PDSAs. There are ones about measurement. Um, and it's trying to give some people some kind of practical application. Now, the challenge is, though, um, that we want to make sure that we don't just get caught up in doing a game and have fun and miss the learning points. Um, so uh, I've had some great conversations with my colleague, uh, Julie Reed, in the UK, who, who does a lot of, um, of research around how do we move from teaching people to actually having people apply improvement in a rigorous way and and that's the, always the good tension I you know I have no proof for example that doing Mr. Potato Head or the coin spin game by itself results in a good PDSA being completed by a participant but it's a tool that supports me in being able to explain some concepts and then I got to keep going and having people actually do PDSAs with actual things that they're trying to improve and learn and get better and better at it like I'm trying to build a muscle um, or do a better push-up Great. No, it's great. Great comments there, David. Time for probably just a couple more questions here. I, I really like this one from Kristen. Many processes handle standard workflow well, but fall apart when exceptions or extreme variation is introduced. So, so some thoughts from uh, on introducing not just broad process improvements, but robustness or reducing process fragility. Um, just a great question. Dave, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Can you scroll it uh, back down, John, just so I can – I just want to make sure Another that I question? saw – all the parts, yeah, of her question there. Um, so Kristen said, so many processes handle standard workflow well, uh, but fall apart when exceptions or extreme variation is introduced. Thoughts on introduce, uh, uh, not just broad process improvements, but robust or reducing process uh, fragility. So, well, you're right. So so one thing, first of all, that I always question when a process falls apart is how, how um, good is that process in the first place. So um, it's very common for processes to be embedded uh, and implemented that they're actually, uh, they're still reliant on individuals um, or they're reliant on organizational knowledge um, and they actually don't operate. And so, um, you know, with reliability by themselves. And so something will change. Somebody will move or you'll have a new staff or something like that. And then all of a sudden you see a process breakdown and you're like, oh, gosh, what's going on? And it may actually be that we just have an opportunity to make the process uh, more reliable. Um, I think another thing here is to, to use um, the Shuhart statistical process control as one of the core uh, tools to help you in understanding the process. So 
it really gives you a sense about the predictability of the process, the reliability of the process, um, and enables you to uh, see if something's going in a direction uh, that you don't want it to go and, and hopefully uh, catch it before it becomes something that's problematic. So one of the problems you often encounter is that a process will go bad and it was predicted, but people weren't looking – or it could have been predicted, but people weren't looking at uh, data in a useful way um, uh, or they weren't looking at data at all around that process. And so then it's not until errors or mistakes are happening or, or – that there's uh, you know visible variation that you go back and you realize oh wow it's not it's not operating the way that I would and the Schuhart statistical process control chart could be helpful in that way. All right, thank you, Dave. So I have uh, I have one more question for both of you that we'll turn to in just a minute. Uh, but first, uh, John, can you give us a little uh, a little intro to a couple IHI programs that are coming up? Yeah, a couple IHI programs. So uh, if you tuned uh, to today's WHI, uh, you uh, apparently have improvement on the brain. Uh, so we want to let you know about a couple of great programs that we're offering to help you and your organization strengthen and grow your QI capacity. Now, first up is our Improvement Coach Professional Development Program. It starts in May. Uh, Improvement Coach helps you and your teams develop, test, and implement high-leverage change ideas and and help you understand the concepts of implementation, uh, sustainability, and scale-up, which can be tough. You can find out more about that Improvement Coach at IHI.org slash Improvement Coach. Next up is uh, Leading Quality Improvement, which is a five-month virtual seminar. It's designed to help managers put quality improvement into use for their organization uh, by connecting QI skills to two strategic priorities and LQI begins in June as well. You can find out a little bit more on IHI.org slash LQI. So that's Improvement Coach at IHI.org slash Improvement Coach and LQI at IHI.org slash LQI. For more great IHI programs, check out IHI.org and uh, feel free to reach out to us at info at IHI.org. Great. Thank you so much, John. So we're going to give uh, Susan and Dave, we're going to give each of you a chance to kind of give us a send-off message here. But I want to ask a question that might you, you might incorporate into your answer. And Susan, we'll turn to you first. And my question is, you know, we covered a lot today. We covered seven different tools. Is, is there a common mistake you see a lot of teams make with a certain tool? So if you can leave our listeners with a piece of advice uh, about something you see people forget to do the P and the PDSA or something like that, um, what, what can you leave us with, Susan? So I, I think if I was to leave people with one thought, it, it's more about the human side of change and thinking about how we use these tools. So I could sit alone in a room and, and practice with these tools with my ideas of what's going to create change and improvement. But if I don't engage the people around me who are going to help to deliver that change and that improvement, then I'm really not going to get the most effect out of any of these tools. So, so my uh, my leaving thought would be, you know, think about the people you really want to engage to get best outputs from these tools or any tools that you apply and so that you can really create um, the better chance of um, achieving your goal and your improvement efforts. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your uh, just fantastic contribution, Susan. We really appreciate it. Um, Dave, what would you what would you leave us with? Um, I think one thing I think a lot about is um, you know uh, tools are extremely helpful for building knowledge, and that's the key piece for us is that we're using tools to help understand and learn, uh, and from that. Um, uh, figure out ideas for change, uh, make predictions about what's coming forward. And so I, I think that's a key piece for me is uh, sometimes people look at tools, they don't really uh, learn enough about them, they don't differentiate that they have different purposes, they tell me about different things, and uh, and that the biggest thing that they any of them and all of them uh, do for us is to help us gain knowledge. And a lot of improvement is about gaining knowledge so that we can predict uh, what's going to happen in the future or we can make change that results in improvement in the future. 
That's great. Thanks for all your contributions, Dave. It's uh, you, you speak about this stuff like you live it, so it's wonderful to hear. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And a big thank you to today's audience and experts. It was a great discussion. Next up on WIHI on June 1st, we'll welcome Bob Walker and Tejal Gandhi for the tri- for a show about the digital transformation, how technology is helping and hurting healthcare. A reminder that you can download the chat and any slides we use for our discussion today when you log off. We'd very much appreciate your filling out a brief survey that will pop up. As an improvement organization, we want to know what worked for you today and how to continue to make WIHI a better program. Check out the archive pages for WIHI where you'll find an audio download of this program plus all the resources posted by tomorrow. You can also find the podcast on iTunes. Subscribe under Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And if you like what you hear, please write a review. If you have any questions, connect with us at info at IHI.org. Uh, thanks uh, to the people who make WIHI possible. Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Jane Rosner, Val Weber, Haley, Haley Ladd, and Christine Leong. Uh, it's been a privilege to be your host for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I am Mike Britton. Enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>